Uh, please introduce the uh, third of uh, Professor Hartley Field's uh, lectures. Uh, after after the, the, the talk, uh, there will be a couple of minute break and then he'll uh, uh, take questions. Uh, today's talk is entitled The Case for the Rational Revisability of Logic. Okay, so, so um, just to remind you of something for the last time, by rationally revising logic, I'm going to mean rationally revising our basic logical modes of reasoning, not just rationally revising our opinions about which modes of reasoning preserve the truth. Um, usually during the first of these involves during the second, but not necessarily conversely, and I'll give some examples of that later. Um, and um, also, as a reminder from last time, um, change of modes of deductive reasoning typically bring with them changes in much more. Uh, for instance, um, uh, Graham Priest has proposed modifying our basic modes of reasoning so as to give up uh, disjunctive syllogism that is the inference from A or B and not A to B. Um, this is, is going to require giving up the rule of explosion that A and not A in, uh, entail everything. And if we do that, then we'd better alter a standard constraint on degrees of belief by allowing that the degrees of belief in A and in not A can add uh, to more than one. Um, and, and this will mean that we have to make changes in basic modes of inductive reasoning as well. Actually, I'm not going to go along with his proposal uh, that we give up this uh, objective syllogism or explosion, but um, I will be advocating uh, restricting the law of excluded middle, and that has a similar issue. If you do that, you're going to want to allow for the degree of belief in A and not A to add to less than one. And again, this is going to mean that we have to make changes in our basic modes of inductive reasoning as well. For instance, Bayesian views presuppose that uh, the degree of belief in A and not A will add to exactly one. So that the issue is the first of the two things on the handout rather on the slide rather than the second is um, uh, is important for understanding why it's hard to get an account of uh, rational change in logic. Okay, now as I said, I'm going to be making a case for restricting certain classical laws, primarily the law of excluded middle, in order to deal with the semantic paradoxes and the paradoxes of naive proof of theory. Oh, I should say, some of you will have actually heard part of this talk last fall, but uh, there, uh, there are substantial non-overlapping parts also. Um, okay, uh, making a case for restricting the law of excluded middle and certain other laws, but what I'll be advocating is not intuitionist logic. Uh, it turns out that intuitionist logic is no better than classical in dealing with the paradoxes. It also strikes me as thoroughly and totally counterintuitive. 
Um, so instead, I'll be talking about a logic that was only invented in the last few years, though it's of a broad type that has some well-known examples. And the logic reduces to classical when certain assumptions are made, and these assumptions seem plausible within ordinary math and physics. Um, so, so uh, at least in the case of uh, Dummett, he was proposing modifying logic for mathematics and actually for physics as well. Uh, uh, anytime you get outside of the realm of the uh, verifiable in principle, uh, nothing like that here. Uh, uh, similarly, in the case of uh, uh, Putnam's earlier proposal for revising logic. Um, now, so for present purposes, all I need is to convince you that there's a serious case to be made for solving the paradoxes by means of this altered logic, and that it would not be irrational to alter one's logic on the basis of this case, or even just that there can be a rational debate about whether to alter one's logic on the basis of this case. I mean, I, I, I say that because I think I can hardly persuade you in a single lecture that you ought to change the logic, so my goals are more minimal. Um, okay, so let me start out with something that probably everybody knows, the uh, uh, Grelling paradox involving the uh, notion of truth of. So um, the... the, the um, the intuitive idea of the notion of truth of is summed up by the scheme I've called TO, and it says that a formula at f of v is true of an object x if and only if f of x, whatever the x. So in particular, the formula f v is true of itself if and only if f of f of v. So apply this to the case where f of v is the formula v is not true of itself, and we get that the the um, uh, v is not true of itself is true of itself if and only if it is not true of itself, and this has the form b if and only if not b, which is a uh, contradiction in classical logic. Now I think it's useful to turn the argument around. Uh, and it gives you a classical argument for a claim of the form uh, either the formula f of v is true of c but not f of c and I'll call that a case of overspill because it it says that that the predicate is true of things that it shouldn't be true of or it's the case that f of c but the formula f of v isn't true of c and that's the case I'll call underspill. It's not true of things that it should be true of. So the the uh, argument for the paradox when turned around shows that there must be either overspill or underspill or both um, if you assume classical logic. And not it, it turns out it's not just in this 
example, it turns out there are many, many other examples where the, the classical logician has to say that there's either overspill or underspill or both. Um, well, that's kind of interesting. I use that term because Bertrand Russell, when he was um, concluding his discussion of Hegel's uh, philosophy in his uh, book on, 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 on Western philosophy, summarized it by saying, the worse your logic, the more interesting the consequences to which it gives rise. So, um, Okay. It's more convenient to talk in terms of truth rather than truth of. So let me just uh, uh, do it for truth. So the liar paradox says that assuming classical logic, we must have either uh, uh, true of A but not A, or A but not true of A for certain sentences, such as the liar sentence. Uh, the first is overspill, the second is underspill. Now, so there's three types of classical solution. Um, you can posit underspill, you can posit overspill. Actually, those two aren't uh, mutually exclusive. You could posit both of them. Uh, or you could neither posit underspill nor posit overspill, but say there must be one or the other. Uh, so I'm going to talk about these three kinds in turn uh, kind of quickly. Uh, this is about the quickest discussion I could come up with on, on these. So the paradigmatic underspill theories are truth value gap theories. Um, so let L be the name of a sentence that asserts its own untruth then the gap theory asserts that the sentence L is not true. But it also asserts that the claim that L is not true is itself not true because it's equivalent to the claim that L is not true. Um, um, So it asserts something, namely that L is not true, but in the same breath it asserts the untruth of what it's uh, asserted. And this is the standard thing for gap theories. Now, the motivation for gap theories is that they allow one to accept with full generality the left-right half of the Tarski conditions. Um, um, if A is true, then A, for any sentence A, you care to fill in. And, and the analogous thing for truth of But the price is very high, I think. Not only are there sentences that the theory asserts while in the same breath asserting to be untrue, but it turns out that this is so even for for instances of the T-out schema. Um, So... um, so theory accepts all instances of, of the T-out schema, but, but also declares that some of them aren't true, even though it accepts them. So, um, so uh, essentially, 
at least the theory asserts that not all of its own axioms are true. Now, it seems to me that for a theory to declare some of its axioms untrue isn't just weird. It goes against the whole point of the notion of truth. So, it's often said that the point of the notion of truth is to enable one to express agreement and disagreement in cases where you're, you would not otherwise be able to do so. Um, actually, I'll argue in a few minutes that that under, understates the point of the notion of truth, but it is certainly part of the notion of truth. So, a standard illustration, suppose I'm considering a theory given by a set of axioms, which is recursive but infinite, I'm pretty sure that it goes wrong somewhere, but don't know precisely where. How can I express my disagreement with it other than by saying not every axiom of the theory is true? But that only serves its purpose if for each, each of the axioms, the claim that it's true is equivalent to the axiom itself. Otherwise, uh, 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 what you're doing is not what you set out to be doing. Um, and that equivalence fails according to the uh, classical Gabbard theory. I mean, a, a, a dramatic case is the one that I've, in effect, already given. I mean, the Gabbard theorist obviously agrees with his own gap theory, but uh, he thinks that not all of its axioms are true. So if, he's, if he sees some other gap theory or some other kind of uh, uh, theory and wants to express disagreement, he better not do it by saying, well, uh, not everything in it is true, because that's going to be true of his own theory as well. Now, you might think, well, okay, there's, maybe we could get around this by expressing disagreement in terms of falsehood rather than untruth or some combination of them or something like that. Um, well, this isn't going to work. Uh, so, to see that, suppose that Jones says sentence J, the liar sentence is not true. And Smith says the liar sentence is true. Now, the gap theorist agrees with Jones and disagrees with Smith. But the gap theorist also regards both of their utterances as untrue, and neither of them as false. So, so sentences J and S are to be evaluated in exactly the same way as regards truth and falsity, according to the gap theorist even though the gap theorist agrees with one of them and doesn't agree with the other of them. Um, so it seems clear that using any combination of untruth and falsity to express disagreement is impossible in theory. All right, well, let me switch to paradigmatic overspill theories which I actually think are marginally better than the underspill theories, even though they're less popular. Um, so these posit truth value gluts. Now, when you hear about truth value gluts, you standardly think about dilute, 
theism, and that often is actually defined as the claim that some sentences are both true and false. But in fact, what we standardly think of as dialetheism is a is a, a theory in a, in a non-classical logic. Um, what I have in mind here is a classical theory. It accepts truth value gluts. The the thing is that it doesn't accept the inference from A is true to A. So so accepting that there are some sentences such that they and their negation are both true doesn't commit you to a contradiction in this theory. And uh, most theories of this kind, except the other half of the uh, Tarski by conditionals, uh, they accept all sentences of the form if A, then A is true. Well, obviously, glut theories avoid one problem of gap theories. They do declare their own axioms true. Um, one, one thing that might seem a little bit counterintuitive is that they declare some of their axioms false as well as true. Um, but actually, I think of more interest is that they, they declare that some of their own rules of inference, like modus ponens, don't preserve truth. So... Uh, I've got an instance up there, the, an instance of modus ponens from L is true, then 0 equals 1, and L is true to 0 equals 1. This is an inference of, uh, this is an instance of modus ponens, so um, this is a classical theory, so it accepts this rule. But it regards both of the premises as true and it regards the conclusion as not true. Well, in fact, I guess I sh- should also say it also doesn't regard the conclusion as true. I mean, since this is a, a view that could t- take it as both. Actually, sorry, since this is a, a, a classical government. Theory. I, I guess I don't have to add that. Um, okay. Well, for reasons that 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 I um, it would take too much time to explore, I think this. I think that declaring your own in, own rules of inference is not to be truth preserving. Needn't be quite as bad as declaring all of your own axioms. As, as declaring some of your axioms untrue, but I won't go in and do that. Um, but instead, I'll talk about agreement and disagreement. And here, glut theories are are as bad as gap theories. So go back to the example of the sentences J and S. This time, rather, whereas the gap theorist accepted claim J and didn't accept claim S, the glut theorist accepts claim S and doesn't accept claim J. That is, the glut theorist agrees with S and disagrees with J, but again, he regards both of them as both true and false. So again, the glut theorist can't distinguish between a claim that he agrees with and a claim that he disagrees with in terms of... uh, their truth theoretic properties. 
So again, uh, you can't use truth and non-falsity to express agreement or or untruth and falsity to express disagreement in this theory. Okay, now let me turn to what I think are in some ways the more interesting theories. These neither posit underspill nor posit overspill, but they demand that there be one or the other. Now, at first blush, this seems like an uninteresting position. It sounds uh, uh, like it's just agnosticism between two positions that we've already seen real problems with. But actually, there is a version that isn't straightforward agnosticism. I mean, intuitively, it's a, it's a position according to which it's indeterminate whether there is underspill or overspill in any given case. Now, the notion of indeterminacy is a, is a, uh, uh, is a, a notion that needs to be given content. I mean, as, as uh, Tim Williamson, among others, has complained, uh, um, uh, um, standard attempts to to um, to avoid the view that they're just that ag- agnosticism in uh, terms of uh, postulating that what appears to be agnosticism is, is really indeterminacy. Um, I mean, it's really not clear what that can mean that will... Um, uh, uh, give it any content. Uh, however, I will try to give it a certain degree of content here. Um, so, the kinds of theories I have in mind accept most or all of the f- uh, of the four truth rules that I have up here. Um, um, the first says, says from a you can infer that A is true. The second one says you can do the reverse, um, and so forth. Now, these these views avoid paradox because though they accept those rules of inference and all classical rules of inference as well, they restrict certain classical meta-rules. There's three meta-rules that uh, they need to restrict, uh, first, they have to reject conditional proof. Uh, because of that, the, the, the T introduction rule does not uh, allow you to infer A arrow true A. Um, um, and the second one doesn't allow you to infer true A arrow A. Um, the views also reject uh, uh, straightforward reductio ad absurdum reasoning and most counterintuitively I think they also reject reasoning by cases um, since the um, since though the theories accept all the classical laws they don't accept 
some of the classical meta-rules, it's natural to call these weakly classical theories. And the rejection of reasoning by cases plays a very essential role. So um, consider the contradiction that the liar sentence is both true and not true. Um, so first of all, it's easy to see that by these rules, the liar sentence implies a uh, implies that contradiction. Since since it, it clearly implies itself, the only thing you need to see is that it, it implies its own negation. Well, from the claim that L is not true is true, you use TLM to get L is not true, but that just is uh, um, uh uh, that just is um, uh, uh, um, L, which is is the claim that L is not true. So uh, a similar reasoning gives in the second case that it implies a contradiction. Um, and um, so third, I have have up there the law of the middle that either it's true or it isn't true. So the disjunction of two things that imply contradictions is a logical truth. Well, this may seem absurd, but that feeling rests on the principle of reasoning by cases, it's the principle that if A implies C and B implies C, then A or B implies C. Um, uh, okay, the... Let's stay on the slides for the illustration of the same thing. So let me skip it. So, back to agnosticism versus indeterminacy. Uh, presumably, when we're merely agnostic about the truth of the claim A, we will uh, will allow the meta inference from uh, uh, C following from true of A and C following from not true A to C following from uh, either true of A or not true of A and, and, and uh, therefore C. Um, so the failure to accept the inference is a sign of something that goes beyond mere agnosticism. And it's natural to use the word indeterminacy in this case but you should remember that this is just a label, uh, not an explanation. It's hard to give any independent content to that. So, I uh, nothing so far has been an attempt to criticize the view. Uh, it does strike me as a counterintuitive kind of view, but um, um, but the view actually does have a, or views of this type do have prima facie advantages over the um, overspill and underspill theories because by accepting the four truth rules, these theories avoid the problem of agreement and disagreement as I stated them. 
How, however, I'm disinclined in the end to give this much significance because it seems to me that the problem of agreement and disagreement was really just the tip of a bigger iceberg. Um, so talk of truth isn't just a means of expressing agreement and disagreement for the same reason that talk of goodness isn't just a means of expressing approval and disapproval. So true, like good, occurs in embedded contexts. And in fact, in the context embedded more deeply than a negation. So in particular, the word true is used inside conditionals. And in order for it to serve its purposes, it has to be well-behaved. So... Here's what I mean by that. Um, inside conditionals, as in unembedded context, the word has to serve as a device of infinite conjunction or disjunction. So here's an example. Suppose I can't remember exactly what was in the Conyers report on the 2004 election, but I say if everything that the Conyers report says is true then the 2004 election was stolen as well as the previous one Um, so suppose that what the Conyers report says is A1 through AN then relative to that supposition that previous claim had better be equivalent to the claim if A1 through AN, then the 2004 election was stolen. But that requires that true of A be intersubstitutable with A, even when A is the antecedent of a conditional. But this, of course, is what we can't have. Oh, well, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so, so, more generally... What we want is what I've called here the intersubstitutivity principle. Um, we're, so, so that if two sentences C and D are alike, except that in a transparent context, one of them has A where the other has A is true, then one can interdeduce these sentences. And weakly classical theories like classical gap and glut theories have to reject this. I mean, it's clear they do because they except if a uh, they certainly accept a if and only if a and so if they had the intersubstitutivity principle they'd get true of a if and only if a and that we know no classical theorist can have so weakly classical theories may handle the problem of uh, 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 agreement and disagreement, but the significance of this is is seriously open to question. I mean, the Titanic avoided the tip of the iceberg also. Um, okay, so how could, could we keep the intersubstitutivity principle? Well, Kripke showed one way, or at least one on one understanding of, of Kripke, he showed it one way. Um, um, 
This is one interpretation of the Kleene fixed point constructions. So if you know what they are, take the set of sentences contained in any such fixed point as your theory of truth. Now, this is not a gap theory. You don't say that a sentence is not in the fixed point or neither true nor false. I mean, it's really seriously not a gap theory. In fact, in this theory, the term gap and the term glut are equivalent. From the claim that something is a gap, you can infer that it's a glut and conversely. So this kind of theory gives you a theory of truth based on a non-classical logic called the strong Kleene logic. The downside is that this logic and the theory of truth based on it are incredibly weak. In particular, the only conditional it contains will be the one defined from not an or in the obvious way. But then A arrow A will just be an instance of excluded middle. So you won't have A arrow A as a law since you don't have excluded middle as a law. And there are a lot of more interesting laws of a similar type that you would expect to have that you also don't have. So it's really not a very good logic. So that's one of the problems with it. And a second problem is that there's no way in the logic to say that sentences like the liar sentence are defective, but that is what everybody wants to say. So, I mean, Kripke sometimes slips into saying that sentences like the liar are neither true nor false. But at least on this interpretation of what the theory is, you can't say that. The natural substitute is to say that they're neither determinately true nor determinately false. But no such notion of determinateness is definable in the logic. So what I think we want to do to address the first difficulty, and it turns out the second one as well, is to strengthen the Kleene logic by adding a new and better behaved conditional to it while still retaining inter-substitutivity. And I should add that this new conditional will reduce to the normal one when you have excluded middle. So even though it's not defined in terms of not an or in the standard way, I actually think it has a better claim to be the natural generalization of the standard conditional because it obeys the right laws even if not the right generalizations. I mean, even if not the right definitions. Well, how is this conditional to work? There are well-known paradoxes that have to be circumvented, and that proves hard. I mean, there's what is sometimes called Curry's paradox and sometimes called Lurb's paradox. 
Now, I, I want to start out by talking about a logic that almost works. Um, uh, the Luca Shepard's continuum-valued logic, which you often hear talked about in the connection with vagueness. Um, so, in it, sentences take on semantic values in the unit interval between zero and one inclusive. Um, one, one is the best value, the designated value. And logical operators correspond to functions on these values. So, for instance, the value of the negation of A is always going to be 1 minus the value of A. Uh, the value of A and B is going to be the minimum. Uh, uh, the value of A or B, the maximum. And for the conditional, you have a slightly funny-looking one. The value of if A then B is going to be 1 if the value of A is less than or equal to the value of B. And otherwise, it's going to be 1 minus the difference between the values of A and B. Um, so, so that's going to yield the, the value of A arrow A is always 1. Now, it turns out that if we restrict the use of quantifiers in certain ways, we can get the intersubstitutivity principle and the Tarski by conditionals to hold in this logic. I mean, this has actually quite a, a nifty proof uh, using the Brouwer fixed point theorem. Um, so that's really nice, but it's not, it's not really, really nice. I mean, because what we need is a logic that, that, that does this without the ad hoc restriction on quantifiers. And this can be done, and I'm not going to try to give you details, but I'll try to give you some sense of it by saying a little more about the Lukashevitz case and why it goes wrong. So an important feature of the Lukashevitz conditional is that it can be used to define a natural notion of determinateness. So it's determinately the case that A is defined as it is not the case that if A, then not A. Okay, don't, don't try to puzzle about that. Uh, um, but just look at the graph which I've drawn. Um, um, it has the properties that we'd expect of a notion of determinateness. So I have, the, have them listed here. So the first three say, in effect, that the value of determinately A is always less than or equal to the value of A, and that, um, and that, um, uh, um, one is the only value that A can have in which determinately A will also have a value 1. Uh, and and then, then the last one I have uh, uh, number 2 just uh, gives a kind of uh, uh, monotonicity property. Uh, um, we we um, I also beyond those I wanted that the 
that if if A has value no greater than one half, then determinedly A actually has its value zero. So this is what's going. Since the liar sentence is going to get value half, this is what allows me to say that the uh, liar sentence is uh, not determinately true. Um, But now, once you have a notion of determinateness, this raises the question of, well, okay, so you've handled, handled the liar paradox by saying that it's not determinately true. But then what about the determinate liar paradox, a sentence that asserts its whole, it, that it's not determinately true? Well, it turns out there's no problem with this in the theory, you can easily see that such a sentence can be given the value two-thirds. I mean, if if A is a sentence that has value two-thirds, then determinately A, if you look at that graph, will have a value one-third, and so not determinately A will have a value two-thirds. Uh, so A has the same value as not determinately A as you wanted. Um, so, you can't say of such a sentence that it isn't determinately true. Uh, that has, has only value two-thirds. You're only allowed to say things that have value one. But the claim that it's determinately, determinately A, so determinately A has value one-third, so determinately, determinately, a has value zero, so not determinately, determinately A has value one, so you can say that it's not determinately, determinately true. Um, there's a general moral here. Um, so if, if LN is a liar like sentence equivalent to the claim that it is not determinately, determinately, determinately n times true, um, then it's consistent with intersubstitutivity to assign uh, it the a, a quite high value. Um, you can see it by uh, uh, graphically so the top graph there is the graph for for determinateness to the nth power. Um, if you flip the graph over, upside it down, that's the graph of not determinate to the nth power. And, and where it crosses the diagonal is the place where um, you have to... That's the value that you have have to assign it to the sentence if it's to assert its own uh, lack of determinate to the nth truth. That's actually a simple case of the of what I call the nifty Brouwer fixed point argument that you get more generally. So, so this is going to license 
It's the assertion of it's not determinately to the n plus 1 true that L of n. So, so for this nth order liar sentence, you can't assert that it's not determinately to the n true, but you can assert that it's not determinately to the n plus 1 true. So d of n plus 1 is always stronger than d of n. Um, and, and these uh, sentences ln are non-paradoxical in the theory. So this is all really very nice, I think, but there's a problem, which is that once you have quantifiers, um, your they, together with the truth predicate, allow you to construct a limit operator d omega. I mean, d omega a just says for every natural number n, the result of prefixing n occurrences of d to a is true. And it's easy to see that this is what I call a monster operator. That is, its negation assigns 0 to sentences with value 1 and 1 to sentences with value less than 1. And this reinstitutes paradox because there's no... There, 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 there is no way that a and uh, uh, not d omega a can have the same value in the logic. So the key to resolving the paradoxes is to uh, modify the Lukashevich semantics in such a way that quantification can't produce monsters and. Uh, it's a bit difficult to do this, but um, it can be done. So, as I said, I'm not really going to give you the details, but what I will do is give you a general framework of which the Lukashevitz is a special case, a, a special case that doesn't work, but which there are other special cases that do work. Um, so, the general framework involves a space of values V and a partial ordering of them with the greatest value 1, which is going to be the designated value, and, and, a, and a, 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 a smallest value 0. Uh, so it's not, in general, going to be a, a, a total or, or ordering. Um, um, but um, so we're going to assume that any two members have a least upper bound and a greatest lower bound, and we're going to assign. So if if uh, sentences A and B get certain values, then the sentence A or B will 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 get the least upper bound of those values, and the sentences A and B will get the greatest lower bound. Um, we do um, and we do it in such a way that no two values other than one have one as their least upper bound. We want that so we can have reasoning by cases. Um, you do something similar with quantifier. There's a little bit of a, a technicality here that I won't go into. Uh, for for 
negation, what we want is to postulate an up-down asymmetry, that is an, an operation that reverses order and when applied twice leads back to itself. So that uh, uh, given this, we, we uh, get the usual De Morgan laws and the double negation law, which we don't have in intuitionist logic. Um, and finally, we need an operation corresponding to the conditional. Well, here's where things get hard. And uh, so you might be inclined to postulate every law that you think the classical conditional obeys, but then you're going to be in trouble because um, you have to be pretty careful which laws you add because because of these uh, paradoxes, like the Curry paradox that I mentioned. But here's, I mean, I uh, have up here a uh, very small list of laws that uh, seem like you pretty obviously want. Um, Actually, you can get a whole lot more than that, but... um, um, Now, as I, I say, one one instance of this general framework is is the Lukashevich semantics, um, but we want a logic with this framework in which we can assign values to sentences in a way that accords with the intersubstitutivity principle. Uh, we've seen that we can't do that with Lukashevich semantics, but it turns out. As I said, there are other instances of the general framework in which you can do this. Um, and indeed, you can generalize the intersubstitutivity principle beyond truth to truth of. Um, and in this way, we can get a general resolution of all the semantic paradoxes. In fact, we can get the property theoretic paradoxes as well. Um, uh, so when I say a general resolution, I mean they will accord with the naive schemas of semantics and of property theory. Now, let me... Um, only a few more slides. Um, so I, I want to give you a, some sense of the theory and how it compares with the Lubashevitz by con- considering the hierarchy of determinateness operators. So remember, I said that with the Lubashevitz theory, you can perfectly well handle the sequence of operators D, 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 and so forth. Um, But the problem is that that once you get to the omega iteration, you have a problem because there is a collapse into what I call the monster operator. Um, Um... the 
collapse occurs already at the omega level. Um, but, but that limit operation is clearly definable in the language uh, uh, using uh, ordinary set theory plus the word true. So that, that's what rendered the Lukashevich semantic unsuitable for the paradoxes. Okay, so how, how do we avoid the problem in, in, in the proposed theory? Well, there's still going to be a determinately operator D, and that's define it pretty much as before. And you can iterate it, and again, you can iterate it into the trend that's finite. Um, um, and so, um, well, so iterating ob, ob, ob operators, um, uh, uh, iterating linguistic ob, ob operator requires a theory of ordinal notations. Um, um, uh, and uh, there are, are limits on how how far they can be defined. But but for each acceptable notation alpha, we can define the alpha iteration of D, and so we can define an, al- an al- alpha level liar sentence L alpha, which asserts of itself that it's not D alpha true. And what is its status? Well, well, we have a generalization of what we had before. Um, um, when you come to the uh, uh, sentence L alpha, you can't say that it's not D alpha true, but you can say that it's not D alpha plus one true. So it's really just a straightforward generalization, but there is no collapse either at omega or at any higher uh, uh, transfinite level. Now, you might think, well, we ought to be able to restore paradox by a super liar sentence, which says for every notation alpha, um, um, the sentence is not D alpha true. Uh, it turns out that this will not produce paradox for reasons which are actually um, a little complicated to really fully go into here. But it's not that you can't express the sentence in, in the language, but when you do express it in the language, it turns out it doesn't produce paradox. And the reason has something to do with why systems of ordinal notations must eventually break down, um, um, which is a rather technical matter. But roughly the idea is that if you define D alpha on the ordinals themselves, it it must, in a sense, collapse, but it's not going to collapse to the monster operator. Rather, what it does is 
is, is it collapses to something that is in no sense an iteration of D at all. Uh, because even as applied to sentences with value 1, it yields something with value less than 1. So the problem is, if you, you can define this uh, super determinant this predicate in the natural way, but if you do, it turns out what you have defined is actually not an iteration of, of the operator. It's just basically uh, garbage. Um, so, so that's the reason the uh, uh, paradox doesn't. Okay, let me um, just do two final slides in summary. Um, so, the theory that I've hinted at here saves the naive principles of truth, satisfaction, of property instantiation, and so forth in a, a weakening of classical logic. Uh, and it thus avoids the major problems that beset the classical and the weakly classical theories, the problems that I talked about, or some of which at least I talked about early in the talk. So I think this gives a strong case for weakening classical logic. And the modification needn't make a difference within ordinary mathematics and physics because one can assume excluded middle in these domains and in the presence of excluded middle, the conditional uh, behaves just like the classical one so that the logic becomes effectively classical in those domains. Now... I'm fairly happy with this theory, but you might not be um, for a bunch of reasons. I mean, one, one, one reason certainly to worry about it is just that it is intuitively attractive to keep classical logic, uh, uh, to keep it excluded, middle, unrestricted. I don't deny that. Um, you might also have more specific ob- ob- objections. For instance, you might think that the notion of super determinateness ought to be definable in a way that that accords um, with one's ex- naive expectations about how a, a super determinateness operator should behave um, and uh, I mean so so that something that we could talk about um, uh, uh, certainly is a, a prima facie point to worry about so for for either or both of these worries or some other worry it might seem reasonable to keep classical or weekly classical resolutions of the paradoxes despite their problems. And that, I think, is a matter for rational debate. But that is, in fact, my point. Um, As a matter for rational debate, it's something we must accommodate in a theory of rational debate. Uh, We shouldn't imagine that classical logic 
is built into our epistemic norms in such a way as to make rational debate about it impossible. So actually, in the last lecture, I said that we should view classical logic as built into our uh, uh, epistemic norms. And uh, so my conclusion is that, well, we have to allow for logic to be built into our epistemic norms but not in a way that makes a rational debate about it impossible. Um, so um, there is, as I mentioned in the first lecture, there is a, an issue about how that can be, uh, and um, we'll get to that in the last uh, two of the lectures.